Today's episode is brought to you by Choice by Kingdom Trust and Voyager. We'll learn more about them later on in the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where two times a week we talk to your favorite personalities in Bitcoin, crypto, finance, uh, politics, art, music, and basically anyone with an interesting story to tell. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company that has over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. Now, if you like the podcast, you follow me on Twitter, then you absolutely absolutely need to check out my new website at thewolfofallstreets.io. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter there, which is a great resource. I think you guys will really, really like it. So now that's all out of the way, let's get to the important part, which is today's guest. Uh, he is a Georgetown MBA, former Marine Intelligence Officer, and most importantly, certainly to me, the founder and CEO of Round the X, who I'm proud to say are one of the sponsors of this podcast. Now, I was using Round the X long before they were a sponsor. I was a very happy customer, and we'll get into why uh, when we speak a little bit more. But I'm really interested in hearing Andrew's background, why he founded the company, and why he's so passionate about dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin. So welcome, Andrew, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I, I touched on before that uh, you were in the Marines and that you were stationed both in Iraq and Afghanistan. Can you talk about a little bit about uh, why you chose to go into the military, that experience, and how it sort of put you on your path to where you are now? Yeah, I, um, so um, I, it, was, it was, you know, that era of our history. Um, I was in high school, a junior in high school uh, on 9-11. I remember that day, and then um, a lot of my friends enlisted in the Marine Corps right out of high school. I'm from rural Virginia, so it's a, uh, a very um, military-friendly area, lots of family history in, in the armed forces uh, where I'm from. But my, uh, my family, other than my grandfather, uh, my grandfather was the only one who served in World War II in the Army. Um, but we were always kind of pro involvement in American policy. Um, Virginia's, you know, most of the founding fathers were, uh, British exiles, I guess, during the the English civil war that became, uh, aristocrats here in Virginia and, uh, were, uh, in the position to lead the early Republic. Um, so there is just steeped in history. I'm, you know, I'm coming from me from Richmond, Virginia, which right. still institutionally has all kinds of problems around uh, all the relationships, you know, how our country was founded. But the area itself is um, very much involved in, in what the national policy is. And at that time, I was yeah, a young man and uh, very interested in um, what we were doing overseas. I, uh, I opted to go to college first, uh, although I almost enlisted right out of high school. Um, but when I went to college, I, I wasn't ROTC or anything. Actually, I, I kind of uh, just got into college life for about three years before Who I wouldn't. Came. <laughs> right, right. How could, how could you not? Right. Like college. it was so awesome. Um, I had a great time at University of Virginia, and um, by my third year, I you know started to think more about the future. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had some ideas of maybe law school, but reality was. Um, I knew I liked to invest. I've always been fascinated with financial markets, but a big part of that is like the macro environment. And at that time, the, you know, the big macro thing, we weren't printing trillions of dollars yet. Um, I, you know, I had my own personal ideas around whether the Iraq war should have ever even happened uh, or even how we went to Afghanistan. But, you know, the country had said, this is what we're doing. So 
I thought I'd like to be a part of history there. Um, did it, uh, just uh, not ROTC, but went to the uh, officer candidate school, uh, made it through, and uh, ended up uh, as an intelligence officer in Iraq, uh, running a, a drone detachment. Um, you know, for, for young officers in the Marine Corps, you really just got to figure it out. So I had about one week of drone training. And, <laughs> and, uh, Trial by fire. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, hey, go run this drone detachment in Iraq. Um, so I had to rely heavily on those who were experienced, and that was a great learning point, right? Because you're put through this pipeline where you're in your early 20s and you're supposed to be the boss, and in reality, you don't know, and you need to learn uh, quickly about just basic leadership and um, the ability to look out for your people. Um, yeah, it's a bit scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, you, think about it. I mean you don't really think about it, but we just kind of send young kids over there and say, figure it out. And meanwhile, lives are on the line while they're figuring it out. So, yeah, know. I mean, it's a lot like, yeah, I mean, beyond the, the lives at risk, I mean, the learning curve is not unlike business where you, you, you know, you got to figure it out fast and stick to your customer segment. Yeah. Um, so we figured it out fast and stuck to our mission out there, which is running surveillance missions on high value targets. Um, uh, so I did that. I came back. I um, thought I would be doing something different in Afghanistan, but I ended up uh, being a part of a, a small team that embedded with Afghan border police uh, in Southern Helmand province and just ran uh, essentially, um, you know, ground uh, operations there uh, out of Garmercer district. Crazy. Really crazy. It's interesting. I just interviewed uh, Pump recently, a few days ago, Anthony Pompliano, and he also was in the military and told effectively the same story, except for that he was younger. He was in eighth grade uh, when 9-11 happened, but he committed himself that day to, to go and fight and uh, defend America. And I asked him a similar question to this. Um, and you've already sort of hinted at the fact that you weren't necessarily uh, a supporter of both of those incursions or wars or, or, or however you want to uh, call it. But I said to him, you know, you originally went with the idea of defending America, right? Like we've been attacked. I'm going to defend America. And I find that when I speak to a lot of people in the military, they come back with, well, we were really more sort of advancing American interests than we were defending our borders. Uh, do you have any feeling on that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we were doing. Uh, we, yeah. I mean, but that yes. is ultimately uh, many layers, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't have the passion and appeal of defending America, but, you know, many layers under that almost more jaded view of the world, it's, it's a very realistic view. Um, that is the grand strategy. Uh, if you believe in American values at their core, um, based on what we've seen in other great powers around the world. Um, at their governance core. I'm not talking about the core people. I think right, people, of course. at a very basic level, people are both good and bad. You can be good and bad in the same day. Some people are better at knowing when they're being good or bad. And that's just awareness of self. Um, but uh, governance, you know, governments have certain values themselves that may or may, may not reflect the will of uh, the members of their society. Uh, but I think when you look at core American governance values, despite all of the divisiveness that we currently face and the dysfunction really in governance that we see at a basic level here, you know, especially with um, 
kind of seeing the storm coming and, you know, four months later, we're all still inside. Uh, you know, we, um, we do reflect the idea that we should try our best to make everyone have equal opportunity. And I think that's many layers under advancing yeah. American interest, but ultimately. Well, I mean, advancing interest can be certainly skinned as, you know, defense, because uh, obviously it's, it's basically getting ahead of a problem. Um, spending time, I guess, especially in Afghanistan, because you were embedded with Afghanis, what did you learn, I guess, you touched on it. What did you learn about people? Like, you know, I mean, it couldn't be a more polar opposite culture, but you sort of touched on that all people share similar qualities. And what was the experience of actually interacting and living with them and working with them like? Yeah, so there was uh, a language and cultural barrier. There were also um, things that, you know, as, as younger people in the Marine Corps organization, we would have wanted to do faster, but um, we couldn't because there were so many layers above us who had interests they had to balance at the national political level on down uh, to reflect, you know, the will of Americans in, in general. So there's a lot of balancing at the very, you know, rubber meets the road. Um, they were just human. And so were we, we had a certain way of doing things that I think uh, we could have adjusted uh, more to maybe go a little bit more native is kind of the, the saying, right. Um, you know, kind of like the French in Canada uh, when they, when they first were colonizing, um, you know, like kind of get involved more culturally, do more commerce, spend, be out in the community more, kind of live in the community more, but we were a little more separated. Um, but yeah, you know, the good and bad of people is just human nature. People will um, look out for their family. They will look out for those around them. And sometimes that puts them on different sides that have different sure. outcomes. Sure. Uh, what do you think about the fact that we're still there? I, I think, you know, you got to be, you got to choose. You got to, you're either in it to win it or you're uh, in it to, uh, to keep a status quo. Right. I, I don't think we ever really approached the occupation of Iraq or Afghanistan. Well, actually, you know, there was a choice to occupy. And right. then once you have made that choice, then you have to choose to occupy in a way that actually uh, um, ends resistance. So, you know, in World War II, we chose to occupy Germany and we chose to occupy it in such great numbers of physical presence that we ended resistance. You know, there, um, we made the choice to occupy those two uh, uh, locations, and then we didn't really choose to occupy them in a way that would stop resistance. We did it with a very light foot, and it was very hard to run operations, you know, be gone one day. It's hard to build relationships with other human beings who can benefit you in those societies if you're not constantly there to make sure as soon as you leave, someone else doesn't come in and hurt them. Right. So you finished your military service and then what happened? Oh, I mean, you know, it's funny. You know, we'd go on patrols in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, this is when I was first learning uh, a little bit of technical analysis. And I very quickly learned I was a terrible trader in and out. Um, uh, everyone is. <laughs> right. So, but, you know, I guess me especially because I had no discipline around, uh, got caught up in a lot of revenge trading when things would go against me. Um, but luckily I got out of that kind of in, in and out, uh, type training and, and got to like leap options and kind of 
longer term plays on trends I saw evolving, but I was doing that in between patrols. Uh, you know, we had high speed internet via satellite. It was a great way to um, kind of get out of that world for a little bit and advance your future um, and just stay involved. And um, so I, I got out of the Marines. I moved to Richmond, Virginia. I joined a small uh, firm here in Richmond as an investment advisor. Um, uh, and that's what I did for a little bit. You know, it was kind of hard at 25 years old after everything that had just happened in financial markets to get some big accounts. So I ended up. Yeah. What year was that? I mean, it must. Yeah. Oh God. Dur- uh, during basically the recession, right? Yeah. 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 2010, 2011 is during the, um, the just total, you know, when we almost defaulted Carnage. on our chat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I left that, you know, they gave me a great recommendation to Georgetown business. I got back into um, intelligence work at uh, U.S. Cyber Command at NSA headquarters. And, th- and that's where you really see advancing American interests, you know, again, at a more strategic level versus the tactical level running around the desert. Right. Uh, that's interesting. So you were an investment advisor and uh, which and, and you have a background, at least a little bit in technical analysis. So what led you from there? To, I mean, you've effectively gone all in on a company, a crypto company. So what led you to Bitcoin in, the, in that path? Yeah, you know, I think it was a weird path, uh, and, um, but little seeds along the way. And you know, so I'm on patrol in Afghanistan and uh, mud brick houses, um, you know, abject poverty, which is always... This has never been about religion. This is, this is at, if you want to know the truth, it's poverty. Poverty creates desperation. Human beings will look out for their families. That's what's the fertile nesting ground for uh, issues. Um, so if you want to fix terrorism, you fix poverty. Um, Interesting. Um, but what I note, and that's why I love Bitcoin. So I'll get, you know, get to it. There was one thing that nobody ever messed with. We didn't mess with it because we put it there. It was the cell tower. The Taliban didn't mess with it because they needed it to communicate with each other to mess with us. And the people didn't mess with it because they all had a mobile phone. So, you know, abject poverty. I'm walking through the bazaar. I see the cell tower in the distance. There's a SIM card shop in the bazaar. And the next shop over, there's, you know, meat hanging out in the open with flies all over it for sale too. So uh, it's this weird juxtaposition of, old world, new world. Um, and, you know, I started to think, you know, Africa jumped landlines and went straight to mobile. Yeah, they did. No one is going, you know, Bank of America is not going to open up a branch in Afghanistan. These, these people are going to jump uh, bank branches and go straight to something like the Bitcoin network. At that time, I didn't know what it was, but I knew if they had access to mobile, they could access these networks. And Bitcoin was around then. I remember uh, hearing, you know, at first about Bitcoin when I was in Iraq about a year and a half prior to that. Um, so that was a seed planted. Then my time at Cyber Command, I, you know, was witnessing the weaponization of cyberspace and the idea that every time somebody uses one of the cyber weapons in their arsenal, it's kind of out in the lot, out live there, you know, and other people scoop it up, revamp it, and now you've upped the ante again. Eventually, you're going to start breaking the web um, with all these weapons flying around. Um, so I thought, you know, somebody's got to come up with a different security architecture. You know, we've created this awesome decentralized communication layer. 
but it was built for communication, not for security. So we've got all these issues down. I, I, still, I hadn't put it together. About two years later, I finally, unlike most mainstream investment advisors who spent all this time, you know, we spent all this time trying to figure out the next stock to buy, um, the next thing. And it, like, we're all like totally being like, oh, Bitcoin's stupid. Um, you know, just blowing it off. And I finally started to do my homework and I'm like, holy shit, it's not Bitcoin and then everything trying to be Bitcoin. There are a myriad of use cases with sectors just like the equities market. And somebody's got to build a platform to service uh, all of these various allocations that you could have that don't necessarily compete with one another as a use case. And that's when, you know, then I read the, the Ethereum white paper. I'm like, okay, that's the U.S. Cyberman lesson. Um, and, and then I was hooked, man. You know, like I, that's when, um, you know, I sold my house and went all in on this business. I just, I am 100% behind um, this because it's foundational to solve the next generation of problems with the next generation of solutions, I think. So it was more about initially your view that it was a way to sort of bank the unbanked and skip an entire basically step that, that those parts of the world just didn't have access to. I mean, fiat currency in places like that, an ATM, I mean, it's just there's huge barriers to them even being able to use money at all, I would suggest. So you basically, before it was even about Bitcoin, you just identified that there was a need for a way for people to transact who didn't really have bank accounts and, and access. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I don't think at that moment, I was still trying to figure out what it would mean and um, was still way behind on what a solution could be. But, you know, I noted that moment because I thought, you know, there's, there's something to fix here. And if it would be fixed, it would be pretty huge. So you could have built anything in the cryptocurrency space, right? And so what you decided to go with was the most vanilla and simple and perfect in my mind, <laughs> because those are good things, right? Platform to allow people to basically, I mean, you can get into what round the X is, but it, it's a way to round up small transactions and consistently dollar cost average, you know, with small amounts into Bitcoin or, or other assets of your choice. So why did you, which is something that I'm just personally a huge proponent of. It's the way I've always invested. And I think that it takes, um, a lot of the guesswork out for people and a lot of the emotion, which I think is huge. Um, you know, wh why did you decide to focus on something that just simply dollar cost averaged into Bitcoin? Well, I mentioned I'm a terrible trader. Uh, so that's number one. So you I built it for yourself. <laughs> right, yeah. I needed a way to not go totally broke. Um, so I, you know, I knew that I knew there were, there was um, precedent for the behavior. You know, at the time everybody was talking about decentralized networks and, all these great things that seemed out of my wheelhouse to do at that time. Um, but I knew there was precedent for adoption of a tool set that was pretty straightforward. And um, knowing my own strengths and limitations at, you know, my mid thirties now, I knew uh, maybe my part of it all is just making it easier for people to get involved. Yeah. And you know, what's easier than spare change. And I also, you know, just by the way, the different assets were coming out at the time, I had several accounts and I was like, dude, it's really hard to like log into each of them separately. It's um, so annoying. Yeah. So I thought, why don't I just pull them all together and let you interact with them in one place with the tool? 
Yeah. And, and so can you, I get, guess, get into the specifics of exactly how it works for someone like the step-by-step I visit roundly X. Now what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. So you just go to roundlyx.com. Uh, you sign up. Um, you're then prompted to connect your uh, banking institution via plaid and whatever cryptocurrencies, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges you hold. We support four exchanges, Coinbase, uh, Voyager, um, you know, we're really excited about their fee structure uh, and the uh, assets they list. Uh, Kraken and Binance. Kraken and Binance right now are view balance only. We'll, we'll eventually add the ability to round up into those accounts too. Um, and then you're up and running. It takes like five minutes. And yeah, uh, every, every time you swipe your card, uh, say it's $1.80 for a cup of coffee in the morning, that'd be round that up to $2. That's 20 cents of spare change that goes into whatever asset you've decided to round up into. Yeah. It's so cool. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I just love it. <laughs> I personally, it's just every single day. I just you see this kind of alert come up that I've right. bought something and it's just such a simple way. And, um, I mean, I guess it's basically the acorns model, right? I mean, were right. they in existence before or was, I mean, was that the inspiration? Is that where you got the idea? Yeah, I was a user of Acorns. Uh, I liked what they were doing. You know, Acorns does it a little differently because they're essentially rounding you up uh, into more of like a portfolio that they manage. Right, they're um, like little ETFs. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I knew there was an opportunity. And I, there's, you know, there's an opportunity too to go really, uh, to round up into really anything that's digital. Um, so I see that as kind of a longer term vision. Um, NFTs, uh, all these various assets beyond cryptocurrency, um, and kind of put them in one easy to use place. So, um, I, and I think it's important to note, uh, one of my favorite things is that, um, you guys don't really, uh, hold anyone's, uh, crypto at all. Like, you know, it's on the exchange. You're, you're just basically facilitating the transaction between, you know, their roundup source and the exchange, right? Yeah, so that's, that was the other thing. We wanted people to feel comfortable uh, using the exchange that they currently use to custody their funds. Um, yeah, these are uh, multi-million dollar exchanges. They've built out uh, adequate and robust security apparatus. Um, so we just, you know, we just want you to connect the exchange you already have and you're up and running. Um, if you want to withdraw it, you can go through all the security of your exchange to move it around. But uh, the worst thing anyone could do by hacking into your Roundly X account is help you uh, buy more of the crypto. You want to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you just round up faster. Uh, they can't take anything from you. And, and actually, you know, man, I got to sleep at night, you know? So like, I don't want to put anybody at any kind of risk. I just want to make the world better. Here's a tool go out and thrive. It, at least you won't lose all your Bitcoin when it goes to a million dollars. You'll have some of it left that you rounded up into. Don't be a part of the 7.1 million Bitcoiners in the United States who have Bitcoin and a retirement account, but don't have Bitcoin in their retirement account. Seriously, you can hold Bitcoin in your retirement account and not just GBTC. How can you do this? Through a self-directed choice IRA by Kingdom Trust. The first 1,000 users to open a Choice IRA will receive $62.50 in free Bitcoin. Visit retirewithchoice.com slash wolf. That's R-E-T-I-R-E-W-I-T-H-C-H-O-I-C-E dot C-O-M slash W-O-L-F. 
Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the waitlist and get their choice IRA first. Do it right now. It's time to take control of your financial future and free yourself from the restrictions of classic retirement accounts. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. <laughs> when it goes to a, bill, a million dollars. Uh, I love the uh, certainty because, man, that would be a... Uh, be a great moment yeah. for all of us, certainly. So, um, I've been. I've it been, seems that. Go ahead. Yeah, it's like I've been very fond of uh, telling all the haters the past couple of years. You know, it was a nice period to round up for like two years of crypto winter, where you have this basing. Just do I mean, nothing. Just round up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, now I kind of get to talk a little shit now that we're uh, pumping a little bit because I'm like, you know, tulips didn't four X off the lows, man. You know. Yeah. So it's crazy. I, I switched from uh, Bitcoin to Ethereum primarily um, between Round the X and Voyager and also buying on, on the side. And I'm up like 70% this year on simple dollar cost averaging without even giving a thought to a chart or trying to identify an entry. I mean, it's pretty crazy. And I feel like it's just getting started. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's like a true believer. I want to believe in every pump, but now I've been around long enough to know like it only ends in tears if you foam up you know right. so so you guys have basically built a to uh, a tool for mainstream adoption it makes it really unintimidating and simple what other um barriers do you see on a macro level not not for your platform to mainstream adoption of, of crypto well i guess you know some very encouraging signs uh, with occ coming out huge. the past couple of weeks you know, huge news now it's you're just one step closer to adoption because most people in the united states or developed world at least already have a bank so you don't have to go find a coinbase or something first so that just makes takes one step out of it and let's face it the exchanges that we partner with and drive uh, their own assets under management and transactability with, you know, the constant spare change order flow. We're strengthening them. So we strengthen our partners. But, you know, in reality, you can see the kind of the trend the the crypto exchanges are really becoming more type of digital asset type banks. Yeah, they are. And, and now, um, now traditional banks, if they're going to compete, let's find out if they're smart enough to compete because they've, they've, tried to um, naysay it so much that you wonder if their management teams are even up to the task of embracing something that's obviously a better product in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but at least um, regulators uh, and organizations like OCC are giving them that opportunity now. Yeah. Um, are the barriers though, you know, I, I think it's just, it's still a little too hard for regular people to, to, to send it back and forth. Uh, some smart entrepreneur will figure that out. 
Um, he's probably going to be on your show, you know, uh, <laughs> or yeah. you know, he or she will be on the show at some point and have figured that out. And that'll be a very, probably exciting. be a 16 year old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll just be like, yeah, you know, and have to go with it. Cause I, yeah. Want, and how they did it, I'll just know it's easy to use. Um, yeah. yeah. And so can you touch on, I mean, security is one of the huge barriers to entry. People don't want to be their own bank. They're afraid that they're going to get hacked. I mean, we just saw the whole Twitter hack, which had nothing to do with Bitcoin beyond send me Bitcoin. But again, it just sort of exposed what people think. And they think, you know, largely that it's for criminals and it's easily hacked and all these things. But if you can custody it in your bank and they'll secure and insure it, I mean, that sort of eliminates that. But to me, the irony of that is that if you're a real Bitcoin believer, the last place you want your Bitcoin is in a bank, right? right. I mean, be, just because like you're, it's a hedge against the banks, right? Short the, short the bankers, you know, buy Bitcoin. Which would have been a great trade, right? I mean, if you had followed that trade, that's a great trade. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think at this stage, it's better to, to take what we can get with the banks maybe sure. getting on board more. But I think ultimately maybe that's the next phase is, on, you know, increasing the onboarding there and then educating folks about taking control of their own keys. Yeah, we don't need everyone to be like a hardcore believer. We just need them to superficially be interested and buy a little, right? I mean, even <laughs> right. if we could get 10% of the population to do that, it would be absolutely massive for something so small and, and nascent. And then, I mean, speaking of barriers to entry, we now have the news that, you know, PayPal and Venmo are moving to allow... Uh, people to buy crypto, which is 320 million more people that can buy from a place that they trust, right? And that they're comfortable with. So, I mean, you got to think that this is really starting to starting to snowball, right? Oh, there's so much more upside. And here's the, I was talking to someone the other day and um, they're like, well, how much more upside does it have? And I'm like, dude, you know, Bitcoin's market cap is only like 10% more than Comcast's. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, <laughs> I, it represents a much bigger idea than cable television. Um, so, you know, it, to me, it's just like, we really, they're going to be saying the same thing when we're in the six figures, right? Like how much more up, upside does it have? It's like, dude, just comp it to existing asset classes and you'll see how teeny it is and how little bit of new uh, of fund flows it takes to make it go up a lot. Um, right now, I mean, outside of price, like understand that you should just have some as complete insurance against like disaster. I mean, it, I've never been one to be like a doomsday prepper or anything like that, but like, it's just dumb at this point not to have some Bitcoin when you see what's happening in the world. I mean, there, we, Venezuela, Lebanon, Argentina, all these places, their money is worth dirt. Right. right? And it's... You know, and so, and here's my other point on that. It's almost a breach of your fiduciary responsibility if you're uh, an institutional money manager. I, you know, just this past week, I was watching CNBC, and um, you're, you're starting to get institutional managers actually understand what they're talking about, and it's very bullish for our sector. But every once in a while, you still run into one person who has just not done any homework for and five just years still. hated in principle. Yeah. Right. So this person says, um, no, I'm really not into Bitcoin. Uh, my kids in college a few years ago were just still using it to buy fake IDs. And that's the extent of his lazy research. Right. Because um, nobody's ever bought a fake ID with dollars. Right. Right. Yeah. Every time somebody gets scammed in dollars, nobody's like, should we ban the dollar? 
you know? So it's um, ridiculous. So it's all kind of ridiculous, but you know, it, it's, it's getting to a point where I think you're at more risk uh, as a money manager if you're not giving your clients exposure than, uh, you know, not owning Bitcoin than um, uh, the risk you're taking on if you don't hold any for your clients. It's just kind of common sense at this point. And I think whatever your Bitcoin investing thesis is, there are pros and cons. So it's, you know, sometimes I hear Peter, Peter Schiff talking about all gold. And I, I thought, you know, I, I was a gold investor too, you know, even before Bitcoin. So it's yeah. my thought is I've always enjoyed Peter talk um, and some of his viewpoints, but I think it's a little irresponsible too, to say that it's got to be all one or the other. You know, yeah. the, the advantages it's, to gold is that there's a physical presence of it. So you should have some of that. And the advantages to Bitcoin is it's mobile, right? I mean, you can, you're not, you're not leaving the airport in Venezuela with a bar of gold. Let's face no. it. Right, so, right. All, all of your wealth in a uh, suitcase full of gold that you need six people to carry. It's just absurd. I mean, right. gold is a subpar currency at best if you even want to consider it a currency. And like you said, it's not borderless. I mean, you put your you memorize your private keys, you can go anywhere in the world and someone can't rob you, right? If they don't right. know. I mean, it's not even comparable. And I mean, talking about Peter Schiff, he, he has such a emotional hatred for Bitcoin. Right. And you can tell when he and others talk about it, others like him, that it's just a principled hatred that's not based in any fact at this point. And it makes people who are that emotionally biased really look stupid. Right. Like you said, like even if he wants to be a 99% gold, and that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for 1% of it to be Bitcoin. Right. I mean, that, that to me would be a respectable uh, disagreement. The only thing I, you know, I can't accept is all one or the other. Right. And so I want to touch back on, it's interesting, you were talking about obviously in Afghanistan that everyone had a cell phone, you know, right out in the market next to the uh, fly ridden meat. Um, it leads me to believe, and with all the things we're seeing with central bank digital currencies, that basically all of those places and most of the world is just going to soon phase fiat out. There's going to just skip it, certainly in Africa and places like that. And that the future of money is is digital one way or another, right? I'm not saying crypto. I'm saying literally like, you know, uh, central bank backed digital currencies issued by governments. I mean, do you think that that's the inevitable path of money? I, I think it has to be. I mean, I think the genie's out of the bottle on settlement costs. And um, one way or the other, we're, we're going to have to eliminate those settlement fees. And that very bit, just doing that, you open up a myriad of new business models um, when, when you, you know, when someone's not eating two or 3% on every transaction, um, just, yeah, they're just so, I mean, you know, we can't even think of them all. I mean, once you can move value that easily, that cheaply, then frictionless uh, movement of value all over the world. I mean, you know, who knows, what's going to come of that in five to 10 years. And I think right. we are, even as fiat currencies go digital, um, we are in a multi-year, you know, multi-decade movement towards um, some non-state backed alternative stores of value. And Bitcoin is obviously there. Um, and I think that's going to be uh a, you know, more of a balance, uh, basket approach. And I even see like the geopolitical grand strategy 
where as tensions escalate amongst the great powers uh, of the world, U.S. and China being the most obvious these days, but um, you're going to see countries make a move against the dollar reserve, at least to um, as a point of leverage. And you're going to see some baskets proposed that um, may or may not include a, a digital asset component. Yeah, uh, but would definitely. I mean, the dollar even today is is not getting a strong bounce off of support. It the dollar is getting smashed, and it's. Uh, if you're looking at technically, I mean, this is the support, right? I mean, right. if you if you really believe in technical analysis, if the dollar drops here, I mean, we're into you know we're we're talking about two thousand eight, two thousand nine levels for the dollar being in play. And now, I mean, talk about cracks in the foundation. We have like Goldman Sachs coming out and saying that the dollar is at risk of no longer being the world reserve currency. To yep. hear that from Goldman Sachs is pretty scary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it's like, it's, it was surprised me because the past couple of days I saw it approaching that uh, support and I'm like, we're going to get a big bounce and we'll probably get a correction. Still dropping. You're not seeing a violent bounce higher, which is... Uh, you know, kind of maybe telling, we'll find out. Um, But, you know, but even, you know, everybody else is watching that too. You know, everyone else uh, in the world who uh, is an adversary at a geopolitical level is is watching that weakness. Intelligence agencies are built around desks, you know? So there is a... I've seen Homeland, so I know all about it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we're all educated on it. I know everything. Um, But, you know, the, the, the... Chinese or whatever adversarial desk uh, for the U.S. is watching this, and um, they're going to start thinking of ways to uh, pull apart. Force the issue. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, do you think that China is the next global superpower? I mean, you touched on China and United States being the primary two. I mean, I guess people could argue Russia, but I mean... It certainly seems like China is trending up and the United States, certainly if we're talking about digital currencies, is trending down. Yeah, I think um, in the absence of a, uh, a more united United States around um, all the various issues we're facing and, and some progress towards resolution on a lot of our internal issues, uh, issues. Um, we are just not going to be able to be on the world stage. Uh, and more holistic societies who are kind of, their societies are all on the same page on, on certain things, will be able to fundamentally be more able to um, project power. Um, you know, I, I would hope that uh, values that are good for humankind and our planet uh, prevail um, in, you know, the, the grand strategy, the great struggle of, of world powers. I have to think that, you know, everything going digital is good for Bitcoin uh, and crypto in that it will introduce people to the idea of using a wallet, how to transact digitally, all those things. But on the flip side, I mean, cash is really good for transacting privately. I mean, it's definitely its single greatest um, asset is that I can pay you in cash and nobody knows about it, right? So you have to imagine that a central bank digital currency will effectively eliminate all privacy in people's uh, national currency and using money of of your country. Do you think? I mean... Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think just fundamentally that's how it would work. Um, And 
as, as soon as that feature is enabled in government, um, it will um, eventually evolve into, uh, mm-hmm. into a tool used to, to see what's going on. Um, and our society will have to find a balance between that if we choose any balance at all. Um, but I think, you know, uh, it's progress in one way and maybe not progress in the other. I think I can make local anonymous, um, uh, purchases and transactions and cash. So, right. (laughs) Maybe the IRS will actually be able to tell us how much we owe in taxes without making us jump through so many hoops to uh, figure it out on our own. I've never, I don't know, total tangent, but like, I feel like taxes, the IRS is literally just like, we know exactly what you owe now, go figure it out. Right. Yeah. Like, um, we're, we're just imposing requirements. Uh, we may or may not be competent enough to help you at all, uh, meet our requirements. You, you owe us this amount, but go pay someone to prove that you understand that you owe us this amount. And I mean, digital currencies may actually help with that, but I find it really interesting that the digital dollar, the concept it's been floated here and there, but like, this is being tested in China. This is being tested in Europe. You know, the bank of Japan is using it. We're so, so far behind. And this is the future of money. It just shows how far the United States is lagging on these huge macro issues. Uh, I know you've talked to me sort of in the past about the idea of this being somewhat a new cold war. And it seems like money is, would sort of like be a really essential way to win that war and that we're just losing. We're just so far behind. Yeah, we've, we've got, you know, uh, a leaky ship here uh, in terms of our ability to, um, to match with what other countries are already are doing. I, my hope is that we adjust very quickly as competition uh, enters the global stage. You know, up to the 90s, we had the, the, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It was almost a unifying event for us mm-hmm. where we, we had an adversary. Common enemy, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, we lost that. Uh, for a little bit. And, um, you know, but I mean, doesn't it suck that we would need a common enemy to like push the world forward? Uh, it seems nature of humanity, I guess it is really sad. Yeah. You know, it'd be nice if, if, um, there was an element of competition that, uh, that never went hot and, and no one ever had to get hurt, but we could propel the world forward, uh, with some healthy competition. Um, yeah, tricky times, man. You know, just uh, a lot of coming at us this year. So it's 2020 is a joke. Um, and speaking of which, so I mean, Bitcoin obviously is a hedge against these things. There are other things that I know that you're passionate about that are hedges against sort of a potentially failing system. I mean, you're a beekeeper, right? Yeah, man, that's my uh, ultimate hedge. I will at least have some honey if everything else goes to shit. I, uh, Got into beekeeping um, during crypto winter, right? So, like, you had to have something to do instead of stare at the price for the first six months. And then you kind of went numb and uh, just kept kept building the platform and um, getting away from it all and, and checking on the bees. I know you bought uh, a cow. so Yeah, I mean, we bought a cow um, from my, my wife's family or farmers. And... Uh, you know, I, I don't think we quite did the calculations necessary to understand that we have 600 pounds of meat coming that's likely going to spoil within a year <laughs> in the deep freezer. So we're looking for some um, some partners in our in our cow venture. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did. I mean, it was a you know, it was, and it seems crazy, but you know, my I want to have something if if which I don't think will happen, but if the supply chains go to crap and if it all goes down. 
at least uh, we'll have something to either barter or, or eat, you know, in, in that situation. And I, I, I think that bees is one thing. I, mean, I just think everyone should have something, whether it's even a small garden in the backyard, just, you know, something that they're doing to actively uh, protect their families and, and, and protect themselves if something like that happens. Yeah, I feel, you know, like history, just uh, understanding history, you can understand kind of like the rhythms of the human uh, experience. And like, you know, didn't people used to have victory gardens where they, they kind of yeah. grew their own thing? And that kind of went away as we had a lot of sunny days in the world. And now we're kind of seeing some cloudy days and people are kind of getting back to the roots of things. And um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I've always kind of got an edge. I'm always trying to uh, develop a business idea of some sense, just what I'm into. And to me, um, all the money printing from the Fed will in, in, uh, in, uh, lead to inflation this go round. I know I was just listening to Chairman Powell speak the other day uh, and, so uh, on, <laughs> on TV. And he's like, oh, you know, this is not going to create inflation because he's comparing it to the last time, um, which was, you know, what? 11 years ago, like yeah, we, say, we're all of 12 years ago, we really learned yeah. every decade now. So yeah. that's going to tell everybody something about how things are working. But, um, you know, he's comparing then to now and he, he's making the assumption that the velocity of money will be the same this go round because, you know, you need the two things. You need supply of money and velocity of money to create the inflation. He's making the comparison to 10 years ago. Well, just even demographically speaking, the new echo, you know, the echo boom or millennial generation, whatever we're calling it, 10 years younger, weren't having kids then. They're right. having kids now. Kids are inherently inflationary because, you know, you like, you can't wait two years to buy them a new pair of shoes. They need those right. today. So that yep. creates demand in this moment and, you know, increasing prices as that demand uh, you know, nobody's saving and hoarding their dollars and, and not getting their kids clothes um, as they grow. So, like, he's making that assumption. And then he's uh, kind of making the assumption that, like, trade wars, breaking global supply chains aren't in and of themselves inflationary. Because if you're breaking economies of scale, there's that um, that period in between, you know, where we were and then where when we figure it out where... There's like people kind of creating, uh, producing things inefficiently, which will be at a higher price, hence inflation. So we're, you know, even at the top levels, and this is why you probably don't want one small group of people creating your entire monetary policy. Um, the other reason why Bitcoin is awesome, it's just math. Uh, but we're making a lot of assumptions that I think are, are going to create inflation. And that goes into my B philosophy because I get to sell honey eventually with inflation at a higher price point, but my import cost, my, you know, input costs are flowers, right. That just come back <laughs> every year. So right. I'm, I'm getting more profit because I'm selling honey at a higher price every year, but my cost to produce it. Well, that's a rare business where inflation doesn't <laughs> affect your cost. Right. So, yeah. right. Yeah. So I figured it out is what I'm saying. It's all figured out over here. And so now that we're, you know, four months into COVID, I mean, do you think that we're still at risk of seeing, you know, supply chain failures and things? I know that there was a lot of talk about that. You and I have personally talked about that at the very beginning, uh, you know, off air, 
Um, I mean, do you think that we've got that kind of thing figured out? Or do you think that, you know, we could still see one massive wave of all the truckers or the meat plants or everyone working get sick and all of a sudden we, you know, can't get the things that we need? You got it. You know, I hope not. I mean, I, it's yeah, of uh, course. just so many things, so many variables from a macro level to try to consider. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I even think a lot of, if, if anybody left, say, China, for example, and um, moved the supply chain somewhere more in Southeast Asia, um, South China Sea is in and of itself a flashpoint geopolitically. So, you know, maybe even where you moved your supply chain out of China into could be at risk eventually if things really heat up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, then there's just the, the very real prospect of um, – health breaking supply chains. Yeah. Which would, you know, ultimately only lead to more federal stimulus. Uh, We're, you know, I think we're really experimenting with um, universal income now, uh, which is what this all amounts to. Um, All tremendous macro drivers for the asset class we're involved in. Uh, It would have been, and I think it would have happened anyway. I mean, you would have seen adoption of just a better product ultimately anyway. Uh, so it is kind of unfortunate it's happening in this but way. This is a, but this is our moment, right? Yeah. So I mean, okay. if it's not going to work, if it's not going to yeah. work now, it's uh, it's really not going to work. And you talk kind of about global supply chains, and then I think you have like these sort of hyper localized supply chain issues, like in a place that is an actual hotspot, you may not be able to get what you need for a period of two or three months, right? And right. that's you know, and you'll have your bees, uh, uh, of course, absolutely. in that situation. So. Um, all that said, uh, coming back to round the X. So what do you guys have planned for the future? What's, what's next for the company? Uh, what are the future innovations? Yeah. So, um, we're U S only right now for transactability. Um, and I hate that because we're, it's a borderless, borderless asset class. So we want to enable our tool set all over the world. Um, and that'll happen first in the UK likely, and then the rest of Europe and onward from there. Uh, so that's on deck for this year. Um, expand exchange partnerships because we want to bring this tool set to uh, everyone who wants to get involved. Um, and uh, the exchanges all benefit from that um, too. Uh, so that's the big part. You know, we want to make sure that uh, coming into what seems to be the next uh, cycle in digital assets that the, the asset class is able to capture all the interested fund flows, right? Because there are a lot of people that um, are interested but aren't going to throw ten grand into this thing right off the or, bat. Or don't even know how to, right? It's just yeah. too complicated, yeah. Yeah, and they've got to get comfortable first. So we want to be a platform where they can onboard and become comfortable and then really participate as, uh, as time goes on. So what are you rounding into? Oh, just Bitcoin these days. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm really pissed. I didn't buy more Ethereum at like 160. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, those are my two go-to. And then I, I like some of the smaller ideas. Like, you know, I'm fascinated by Decentraland. Uh, Man, um, yeah. I yeah. really like that one. Nexo, I really like that platform too. Um, I'm not trying to give everybody a plug. But no, I, I mean, any, any, any platform where you can park money and uh, earn compounding interest on, especially you're earning compounding interest on a asset that's rising over time is a pretty yeah. powerful. Uh, and some of the exchange token, I mean, you know, but, God, but yeah, you get, yeah, 
sorry, I was going to say, but you do that with Voyager with you guys. So like right, I, yeah, we ra- support- I round into things on Voyager and then I just leave it there and it gains interest. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. Even their token, man. I mean, we support, oh my God. Crazy. Uh, we support the Voyager exchange on the platform and like, I don't own any of these tokens. I'm just watching them shoot up and I'm uh, like, I should uh, like, I've, you know, I've been using Voyager for so long, been such a fan and proponent and spokesperson. And here I am watching their token, like do like three, four five X's while I'm laughing, sitting on the sidelines, boringly, uh, buying Bitcoin. But you know, yeah. that's kind of the nature of the beast, right? Is, a. Uh, <laughs> And their stock also has done incredibly well on the Canadian Stock Exchange. So it's like a double whammy for those guys who are, who are participating. It's really incredible company. Yeah, I'm like so sick of all of it. I, um, you know, it's, it's tough because like it's at a certain point, you just, you like calling the future and being right on the future, right? As an investor. Yeah, of course. And there's just so much opportunity in this uh, emerging asset class that it's like you can almost never be happy because there's always something that's pumping harder than something else, right? Mm, it's a huge part about the emotional control, though, is just understanding that you got to kind of choose your horse and be patient and stick to it because they'll all go, you know what I mean, as long as you're not buying a complete garbage asset. So, right. well, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much. Um, I definitely suggest that everybody check out Brownly X because it really is just the simplest and easiest tool for, um, you know, gaining even just minimal exposure and with money that you'll never miss, which to me is the big part is because when people buy the first time crypto, you know, and like you said, it's like, do I put five grand into this right now? Then you're emotionally attached when you see the volatility. But when you're doing it $3 at a time, $12 at a time, you never miss it. Right. I mean, it's absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. It's great for people like me too. So, so uh, where should everybody uh, follow you after this or follow the company and yourself? Yeah, just follow us on uh, at RoundlyX on Twitter uh, or you can just go to the website, RoundlyX.com. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again. Uh, and I can't wait to uh, have this conversation again six months down the road when Bitcoin's at 40,000, right? <laughs> That's right. Me too. Can't wait. <laughs> From our lips to uh, someone's ears. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. That's dope.